Hello and welcome to Jetavanarama Buddhist Monastery. Over the last few weeks, we've been exploring some really interesting stuff on this series of Dhamma Talks. You know by now that we've been, we have now entered some exciting and interesting territory on our discovery to the path of happiness that the Buddha laid down so many years ago. And on that journey, today we are about to take another step forward. Let us remind ourselves that the end goal of all of this, folks, is for us to achieve something. This is not a purely academic endeavor. It is for one reason and one reason alone. We know that all sorts of things trouble us, worry us, and keep us up at night. They take away our cool, our peace of mind. So all our lives we've been trying to overcome these ill temperaments. We've been trying to figure out what is the medicine that cures the mind of all forms and variants of suffering of this nature. To that end, we've been attempting all sorts of weird and wonderful things. We've learned all sorts of things. We've done all sorts of things. We've spent time with all sorts of people, all on a quest to try and achieve that happiness which, is, which transcends all and everything else. But we know thus far that all such efforts have been to no avail. And this is why you have come along on this journey with me on a self and personal discovery to our guide to happiness. Before we continue today's talk, let us take a moment to pay homage to the most magnificent one the perfect one, the unvanquished one, the undefeated one, he who discovered this all by himself, the path to happiness, the path to enlightenment, realization, and to fulfillment. And that is none other than the Lord Buddha. Let us take a moment to pay homage to him, and once we've done that, we shall continue with today's talk. Namotas Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuthas Namotas Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuthas Namotas Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuthas Before we take a step forward, it's always good to take one or two steps back just to make sure that we're all on the right track, that we've all got a good grounding and we know where we are. We need to get our bearings right before, of course, we make further steps forward on this journey. So let's take a quick whistle-stop tour of what we have covered thus far. This all started with an inquiry as to what Buddhism is all about. Remember? Do you? No. Why not? Because that's not where we started this. This started with an inquiry as to why Buddhism. Now you remember. We don't do anything unless there's a good reason for it, unless there's purpose behind it. A good why must always precede a good what. So we started with a why question. Why Buddhism? And the reason for that is what I just explained right at the start of this talk today as well. We've been doing so many things. We've been getting up to all sorts of things. 
however large or small, throughout the world, whatever our discipline, whatever our enterprise, whatever activity we are interested in, whatever floats our boat. We've been trying all sorts of things, far too numerous to mention. But we know that none of those things have truly afforded us a happiness that is everlasting. Anytime and every time we've achieved any kind of joy, it has always been very transient. It has never been ours to keep. It has been very temporary. External factors have always had the upper hand. We've always been at the mercy of external factors. They were always able to call the shots. When they said, be happy, we were able to be happy. And when they took away that happiness, then that left us distraught. You know this is true. It only takes one dip into the lab of life. And this can be confirmed. You know for a fact that there are things and people and events that surround your life that seem to have, I say, seem to have full control over your happiness. I don't know about you, but that is not something I'm happy with. The fact that other people, other things and external events can control my happiness. I don't want to settle for that. Because I'm an intelligent person. I have an intellect. I'm able to think. I'm able to make decisions for myself. I'm able to change the direction and the course of my life as I choose to. So it must be then that if I'm not happy about something, I can change it. So, having understood this, we then began to work out that we needed something, some kind of philosophy, some process, some method that could guide us to something that, or that could guide us to a happiness that was ours to keep, an unconditional happiness. We then went on to talk about what happiness is all about. What is happiness? And there, you'll recall, we talked about two very distinct definitions of what people generally refer to as happiness. Do you recall what they are? Now, these are only terms, but they mean very different things. Regardless of what term you use for it, what word you use out of the dictionary to describe these, provided that you know what I mean you have the same sense, that's all that matters. So it could be something else in another language, matters not. What's important is that you and I share the same idea, the same concept. We're talking about the same thing. So these two things were happiness and pleasure. Ah, now you remember. Well done. Now you recall that pleasure is what we refer to use or what we preferred to use to describe the experiences of joy that we have as we go through life and the kind of joy that we have always been used to. The kind of joy that we experience when we get something we like. When we are, we are with people that we like. It's the kind of joy that we get when we have something, when we get to eat something, when we get to see something smell, taste, touch, listen to something that we like. We are all too familiar with this. It takes no introduction. But why did we make this distinction between happiness and pleasure? For one simple reason. We are on a quest to finding a happiness that is unconditional. And assuming that that is at all possible we need to now distinguish between a happiness that is conditional and a happiness that is unconditional. We know that we have not yet found a happiness that is unconditional. So therefore, if that is what we seek, then whatever happiness that we experience at this moment in time, or we have experienced up to this, up to this date, then it makes sense. It is prudent to refer to it with something else. So, you know, we know that it is not one and the same thing. Therefore, we decided to refer to the happiness that we have experienced throughout our lives up until this point. The happiness that can be taken away from us when we are distanced 
from the things that we like, the people that we like, and the events that don't happen to our liking, we refer to that as pleasure. And then we kept the other kind of happiness, true happiness, or unconditional happiness, to a side for the time being, because we first went ahead to explore what conditional happiness that we have all been so accustomed to actually is like under the hood. Then we started to talk about what does conditionality mean? What does it mean that something is conditioned? We then went on to talk about the principle of cause and effect. When there are causes, then a certain effect will manifest. So an effect is always dependent on causes. This is a principle that governs everything in this universe. There is nothing that can be said that is in existence that has not come into being without the required and relevant causes. We took a multitude of examples, the simplest of which was probably a fire, because we are all so familiar with it. A fire is a classic example of cause and effect. We know this because at, in, for science we have learned that there are three important critical factors that need to come together to bring about the result or the effect that is a fire. A flammable object, the right temperature, and oxygen. Provided these three factors are present, there is nothing that can prevent, there is nothing that can stop a fire from coming into being. Provided that these three factors are present, you don't need any extra, any additional factors. Provided these factors are present, we have a fire. The principle of cause and effect also teaches us yet another very important lesson. My favorite, if you ask me. That is, although all three factors are required to bring a certain effect into being... You don't need to take away all three of them if it is that you want to rid the relevant result. You only need to take away one. It's kind of like one plus one plus one gives you three. But for the result to not be three, you don't need to take all three of the ones away. You could just take away one. It does not matter which one. Take away one and the result is no longer three. It'll be something else, but not three. So, again, coming back to the fire, take away one of the factors and you no longer have a fire. You might have something else, but it's not going to be a fire. And this is such a wonderful lesson that we can take from the teaching of cause and effect. Because it is something that is so relevant to what we are studying here, what we are trying to understand here. And it is really something that is of benefit to us because it is supportive to what we are attempting to do. We know that suffering haunts our lives and therefore if there's something that we don't like, i.e. suffering, no matter how many factors and conditions come together to cause it, you only need to take away one of them and then you can be free of it. Now along the same time, I propose to you to consider which one of these two statements might be true. Let's see if you remember it. One, we are always in a state of suffering. That is the default state. And we must always continue to do things to make ourselves happy. Again, we are always in a state of happiness. I beg your pardon. We are always in a state of suffering. So suffering is the de facto, it's the default state, and we must always keep on doing things to make ourselves happy. This seems to be the truth because it seems to be what everyone gets up to all day and night. We always have to keep doing things to keep ourselves happy. Seems right. But then, the alternative. By default, we are, in fact, happy. 
We are in a peaceful state of mind. Our minds are, are at peace by default. But there are things that we do or things that happen which take away that happiness by the creation of suffering. And then once that suffering is created, then on top of that we have to do things to take it away and put us back into so-called pleasure. Not happiness, but pleasure. So these two things I proposed you to consider. And we then discussed how pleasure comes into being. Along the same time, we discussed the concept of vexation, which is a state that the mind goes into. And once the mind is in a state of vexation or wanting something, now the mind has lost its school. When the mind wants something, it needs to be relieved because wanting is not something that is fun. It is not a state of happiness. Although people say it is hope that keeps people alive and it seems to be revered, this state of being hopeful, this state of having expectations, although it seems to be kept on the pedestal and worshipped all day and night, we are beginning to realize, ladies and gentlemen, aren't we, that it is that expectation itself, it is that hope itself that takes away hap our happiness in the first place. Our minds are at a default state of happiness. So this is the idea that we are running with now. And I'm proving step by step, I'm helping you understand and realize that this is what's happening with us. We are at default in a state of happiness. Somehow or other, expectation creeps in and then we want stuff. And when we want stuff, our mind goes into a state of unsettledness. And then it needs to find somehow to relieve itself and achieve a state of peacefulness. So for that it strives from there on. When it achieves what it's been looking for, it is then relieved of that very vexation that it was put in. But we then went on to understand through our discussions of numerous examples that it was never the thing, that object, the person or the event that brought the mind pleasure. And this is a, a very important point that we must all make sure that we have understood, folks. So it is worth coming back to it from time to time. The fact that it is not the outside world objects, events, people, whatever, that makes us happy. Because they do not have the capacity to make us happy. Because they do not possess packets of happiness, if you like. They do not carry ounces of happiness. And through various arguments, we were able to prove this point to us. Now, I hope you remember some of them. For instance, if it's cake that makes you happy, then just gulping down piece after piece, slice after slice, must just keep on making you happy. And you know that is not true. And it is not just because you end up with a full stomach and then you're stuffed and you can't eat anymore. You know that you can't eat the same thing every day, night and day. You know you get fed up of stuff, don't you? That's why people look for variety. That's why when you walk into a restaurant, you have so many different items on the menu. Because people, we know, are various. We know their wants and needs are various. And we know it's different things that make different people happy. As the saying goes, it's horses for causes. Different cup of tea for everybody. What floats your boat doesn't float mine, you'll hear people say. This is because 
What makes one person happy does not make the other person happy. Now that itself is proof, is it not, that happiness is not something that is intrinsic in whatever it is that makes one individual happy. Because if that were the case, then the same thing has to make everyone universally happy. And you know that is not true. And if something makes you happy, more of it should only keep making you even more happy. It should keep making you happier and happier and happier. It doesn't work like that. You'll recall one of our talks, absence makes the heart grow fonder. When you, have, when you are with the same person, when you are associating the same thing, or the same thing just happens to you every day, then, after a while, you get sick and tired of it. You get bored of it. Then you look for something new, something different, something out of the norm. Why? Well, is this not proof? That what brought you happiness once does not bring you happiness now which means it never brought you happiness in the first place. Because if it did, how come it's not bringing it to you now? So, through these arguments, we were able to convince ourselves that it is not the external things, the objects, events, people, you name it, that makes you happy. So then we had to work out, well, what is the principle of happiness? What is the logic behind happiness? What is the science behind happiness? How is it that the mind achieves happiness if it is not through these outside events, these outside factors, these outside objects, the external stimuli? And that is when we came up with this principle of happiness, or perhaps you should call it pleasure, which would be more accurate given our description of it. Pleasure is achieved through relief from vexation. It is only when the mind is relieved of vexation can one achieve pleasure. So it is not the object that brings one pleasure. The mind must first go into a state of vexation, aka suffering of sorts. And then, or you could say it's stress, strain, anxiety, something of that sort. And then it must be relieved of that. So it is the amount by which you achieve that relief, you achieve pleasure. Now the really important point that what I want you to all appreciate here, folks, is that this must prove to you that pleasure is something that is almost a hallucination. It's not totally non-existent. You mustn't think of it that way, because pleasure does exist. But usually people attribute pleasure to the wrong thing. That is the problem. To think that pleasure comes from an ice cream, now that is delusion. But to understand that pleasure comes from the relief from vexation, that is wisdom. To think that pleasure comes from watching a movie, if you think it's, what, it's the movie that makes you happy, or maybe a, a cartoon for a kid, if you think that's what makes the kid happy, it's the movie that makes you happy, being with your friends that make, makes you happy, being with your loved ones that makes you happy, going for a walk on the beach that makes you happy, or watching the sunset that makes you happy. Now, this is delusion. This is ignorance. It is not true. It is absolutely not true. So what is the truth? Is it that pleasure does not exist and this is something totally different? No, because you know we experience pleasure. Both you and I have first-hand experience of that. The only problem here is we attribute pleasure to the wrong thing. Pleasure does exist, but it exists. It comes into existence through the relief from vexation. That is what we need to understand. And when you begin to understand pleasure through that light, you fall out of love with it. You are no longer in favor of it. So much so that when you feel pleasure, you are not delighted about that. You are disappointed about that. 
Ask yourself if this has not happened to you as yet. If you have really followed these talks and really gotten to understand the essence of these talks and, you know, if the message has really sunk, when you experience pleasure, you must be disappointed about that. I don't mean with yourself. I mean with pleasure itself. Normally, people like to experience pleasure. They go seeking pleasure. They want pleasure. They love pleasure. There's probably a club named Pleasure Seekers. But you only seek something that you know is good for you. You never seek something that you know is bad for you. The problem with pleasure is it seems to be good, it feels good, but when you look at it through insight, wisdom, insightful introspection reveals to us that it is fake. It is not what it seems to be. Pleasure is simply a state or an experience of the mind when it is relieved from pain, from suffering, from vexation that was instilled in the mind only because it, want, it was set to expect that very same pleasure. Now this is where I, I want to spend some time today and make sure that you have properly grasped. Because it's actually very ironical. Nothing could be so ironical. There's nothing that is more ironical, to be honest. Your desire for pleasure, your seeking for pleasure, is what vexes you in the first place. So if you didn't go after pleasure, if you didn't want pleasure as much as you do, you wouldn't have to relieve or you wouldn't have to be relieved of vexation and therefore experience pleasure. Now, this might sound a bit mind-grappling, but it makes sense. And I want you to take your time, but make sure that this adds up. This is not a difficult concept, but it's a, it's a subtle concept. Everyone gets it. This is not rocket science. It's far simpler than that. I promise you. It's very simple, but it's quite subtle. When you want pleasure, you start going after it because you want it. Now, when you want pleasure, do you already have that? Of course you don't. That's why you want it. That's why you're going after it. That's why you're seeking it, right? It's your search, it's your quest for pleasure that puts your mind into a state of vexation which then needs to be relieved by providing the mind with whatever the mind believes is the source of pleasure and then once that is supplied to the mind, the mind is relieved from that frustration, that void that it was in up until this point. That relief is what the mind experiences as pleasure. So it's not what the mind received from the outside that brought it pleasure, but rather an wholly internal function of the mind. So to be quite honest with you, pleasure has nothing to do with the outside world. I'll give you a very simple analogy. Look at me. You see, I've got my fingers extended. I want pleasure. I want to feel pleasure in my palm, or in my, in my hand. Right? Now, because I want pleasure, what I'm going to do is I'm going to clench my fist as tightly as I possibly can. 
What do I want? I want pleasure. But I'm going to clench my fist as tightly as I possibly can. And then when it gets really painful, I'm going to relax. Ah, now that's pleasure. That was pleasurable. Did you see pleasure come from somewhere? Perhaps on the back of my hand? It just came and jumped into my, my hand? No, it didn't come from anywhere. So you see, there were no external factors that were conducive or supportive, that contributed to this experience of pleasure. It was wholly internal, wasn't it? To begin with, there's no pleasure. But there is no pain either. See? This is a relaxed state. No pain. But equally no pleasure. Now this is where pleasure and happiness have... The, that distinction is quite important. So much so that I could say that my hand is now in a state of happiness. Because it is not in pain. This is a state of happiness. So I'm giving you this analogy so that it's so simple to understand. I hope this helps. This is a state of happiness. No pain. But I want something more than happiness. I want pleasure. Because I believe that pleasure is delightful. Am I right? Well, you'll see. I believe that pleasure is delightful. And I want pleasure. But if I want pleasure... And there are no external things that can help me support that, help me achieve that. Then I need to come up with my own way. The hand needs to come up with its own way of achieving that pleasure. What could it do? Clench and go into this state of pain. The harder you clench, the more pleasurable it will be when I release. Don't you agree? If I just lightly clench and let go, that's, well, a very small amount of pleasure. But what if I clench my fist and I kept this for, say, 10 minutes, let's say till the end of this talk, I'd be in a great deal of pain. But then, of course, no pain, no gain, right? So now to achieve that pleasure that I so want, have I experienced pleasure up until this point? Where did we begin? Here. That's where we began. Was there pleasure? No. Then I clenched my fist. Was there pleasure? No. So I kept clenching my fist for 10 minutes and now I'm prepared to release. The moment I release, at that moment, I experience pleasure. Right? So the harder I would have clenched my fist, the more pleasure I would achieve. Why though? Do you see pleasure coming from anywhere? From up above? From down below? From the sides? No. Is it something that travels through the rest of my arm? No. So where did pleasure come from? Was it something that came from outside? Was it an external factor? No. So the only way pleasure can be achieved... See, can you... In fact... Can you actually explain any other way I could experience pleasure? This is happiness. I haven't done anything. This is the default state. This is happiness. But is there pain? No. So you see, happiness is where there is no pain. Whereas pleasure, pain must have been there beforehand. Pardon the pun. Once you clench your fist as hard as you can, and then the moment you let go, at what point do you begin to feel that pleasure? Two minutes after you have released, or at that very moment? Now you know, as time passes, from the moment you release your fist, as time passes, the amount of pleasure reduces. Right? So, follow this point with me. And this will all make sense, I promise. As time passes, from the moment I relieve my fist, the amount of pleasure, if in fact, if you were to draw a graph, okay, so at this point, I've clenched my fist as tightly as I possibly can, that is T equals zero. 
and now I'm going to release. When I release, now time starts at that point. Okay, so t equals 1. I've just let go ever so slightly. Where would you plot pleasure on this graph? Now imagine I've clenched my fist for 10 minutes now, and now I'm letting go. You plot, let's say you arbitrarily plot it somewhere on that graph. So pleasure is on the y-axis, time on the x-axis. You plot it somewhere arbitrarily at t equals 1. Now, two seconds after I have let go, so say I'm somewhere there, two seconds after I've let go, where would you plot pleasure? What about the quantity of pleasure now? More than before? As in, is it, is it greater than when t equals 1? Or is it less than that? What do you think? Is it greater or is it lesser? If you're not sure, well, let's wait until we get to a few seconds later. Okay, t equals 3 at this point. t equals 4. t equals 5. Now, if you were to plot pleasure on that graph along the time axis, what sort of graph would you get? So this is very analytical, this is very logical, this is very scientific. There's no magic behind pleasure. Once you understand the logic. This is very logical. What would you get on your graph? You would get a downward facing curve, wouldn't you? Because you'd get more pleasure the moment you let go and less pleasure as time passes. That is why a minute after you have let go, you feel absolutely no pleasure. You're back where you started. You get that? See? Maximum amount of pleasure, and then pleasure reduces, and then you're back to where you started. How much pleasure do you experience now? Say, two minutes after you've let go, how much pleasure do you experience now? You don't. Why? Well, at this point, there's no pain to be relieved. Because there's no pain to be relieved, you can't have pleasure. Because the only way pleasure can be sought is through relief from pain. Now, does that prove to us then, is that not sufficient evidence that pleasure is not inbuilt? Is it in the hand? Is it in these fingers, pleasure? If so, well, my fingers are still here, all five of them. And this is where we started, but where's pleasure? So pleasure was not intrinsic, it's not part of the hand. Is it in the action? If so, then doing this should bring me that pleasure. No. Is it in this state? Oh, rather, is it in this state? Is it in this state? Is it in a state? Is pleasure stateful? No. Yet again, no. Why? Because if so, then the longer I keep my fist clenched, I should be experiencing pleasure. It doesn't work like that. Or, the longer I keep my fingers extended, I should be feeling pleasure. And I, that doesn't work like that either. So that proves to us that pleasure is not either in this state, nor is it in this state. But you do know, because you experienced firsthand, that there was pleasure when you let go. So when you say, when you let go, is, is it in this state? at t equals 1, and we just keep it like that. Do we continuously and incessantly experience that pleasure? Non-stop, you, all you have to do is just let go and just be like that. And then, you know, forever and ever and ever, you'll experience pleasure. Is, does it work like that? Of course not. So it's not in a state, is it? It's not in this state, it's not in this state, it's not in that state, it's not in this state, it's not in any state. state pleasure is not stateful. It is only relieved or it is only experienced when there is that momentary relief from pain, from vexation. This is the same thing that happens with the mind. If you, if you can imagine this is your mind, right? This is the mind in a state of happiness. This is the Buddha's mind. This is the mind of an arahant where the mind is in its default state. All minds start off like this. I'll explain more of that in future talks. 
we all start like this. What happens is, we talked about the second noble truth of last week of attachment. For some reason, now we'll talk more about what those reasons are. For some reason, attachment happens to the mind. Now remember, attachment is a function. It is not a feeling like wanting. You know, you know when you feel that. You know, you know when you want something, right? It's, you can actually feel that. That's a state. The state of wanting can be felt. You can be left wanting for days, weeks, months, years and so on. You can be left wanting for a lifetime. But attachment is not a state. It's a function. It's something that happens to the mind. So the mind, this is in its normal state. Attachment happens. The moment attachment happens, that is when the mind, so, you know, obviously the mind is not an object. It's not a, it's not something you could draw on a piece of paper. You can think of it as some kind of energy for the time being. Let's just take it one step at a time. So this energy, this, this mind, when, it, when attachment happens, when that function overtakes the mind, now it goes into a state of wanting. Which is that? This is vexation. So this you can feel. But it was attachment that caused the mind to go into this state. This is a state. This was a state. This is a state. And then back here is also a state. So this, the mind jumps from state to state. But there are functions that happen in the mind that make all these, do, does all this to the mind. So normal state Attachment happens and then the mind clenches, metaphorically speaking. This is the state of vexation. This is the state of wanting. Now the mind is at unease, unsettled, frustrated, disappointed, annoyed, stressed, anxious, fearful, doubtful, all these things. A myriad of emotions, which are all variants of wanting. From ego, to anger, to desire, to jealousy, greed, malice, all of these, they're all variants of the same thing. In its most simplest form, the mind began... Quite relaxed, no problem. So relaxed, so cool and happy. Unconditioned. You see, this is unconditioned. This is unconditioned. This is just a relaxed state. It's unconditioned. Now you, you must understand where this conditioned and unconditioned happiness and what the difference is between the two. For the, for the mind to be in this state, you don't need conditions. The mind can forever be like this. But what about that relief from vexation that pleasure you need conditions don't you what sort of conditions well the mind must be relieved to be relieved it must first be put into a state of vexation otherwise what can you relieve yourself from you might you will have had pain relief tablets right like paracetamol for instance or ibuprofen these are pain relief tablets so to experience relief, you must have pain in the first instance. Without pain, there's no relief. So then to experience that relief, because relief is joyful, you like the relief, but for, to experience that relief, of course you need conditions, preconditions. And those conditions are relief. And for relief to happen, there must be pain. So first pain, then relief, and then, as a result of that relief, through, throughout that experience of relief, throughout that activity, throughout that function of relief, that pleasure is experienced. So, normal state, quite unconditioned and happy. This is the state of happiness when the mind is considered. 
And then attachment. The moment attachment which is a function, it's not a state, when attachment happens, the mind goes in from this state of normalcy to a state of vexation. This is where the mind wants. Because you see, the mind is now grasping onto something. It, the mind is now craving. It wants something. Whatever it wants, it's, it's now holding on to. I want this. I need this. I yearn this. I need it. What is it that the mind wants, really? This is the irony here. What is it that the mind wants? The mind wants pleasure. Do you see the irony here? Because the mind wants pleasure, which is experienced when it lets go, it does the exact opposite of it. <laughs> As I say, nothing could be more ironical. The mind wants to experience pleasure because it is said that pleasure is such a wonderful thing and must all aim for that. Right? Because the mind wants pleasure, the mind has to go into this state of vexation. How else could it experience pleasure? Because it has to first go into this state of vexation so that it can be relieved from that state. This is the point here, folks. I really, really, really need you to understand this. This is going to be your eureka point, if you get this. This is when you will fall out of love with pleasure. This is such an important point to understand and because this is when this philosophy will start to make sense. This is when the light bulbs are going to go off. This is when the fireworks are going to happen for you. Everything else from there is going to be further explaining the mechanism of this, the dynamics behind this, and to further grasp this concept. But once you begin to understand that pleasure is so overrated, it is so fake, it's just a mockery. Once you get that, then there'll be no stopping you. You'll be then so laser sharp focused on finding how ever it, is, it might be possible to stop yourself from feeling pleasure. How about that? Can you imagine that? If I were to tell you that maybe say before we started these talks, say a year ago, six months ago, a couple of months ago, before you started listening to these talks, or at least before you heard me share these ideas with you, if I were to say, purpose of life should be to try and experience as little pleasure as you possibly can. And if, if at all possible, absolutely no pleasure. You go, what? Are you nuts, Bhante? Why would anyone want that? We exist for pleasure. This is the whole point of life. We want pleasure, pleasure this, pleasure that. I want pleasure. That's what we are here for. That's what I earn my money for. That's why I work so hard for. That's why I did my studies and I went to university, did my degree, got my PhD. It was all so I could experience pleasure. But now, once you begin to understand this concept, folks, you begin to realize that all of these efforts, everything we've been done, we've been doing so far in life has just been absolutely meaningless. Everything that we've been doing for or in the sake of pleasure, for the sake of pleasure has been meaningless. I don't mean everything. You know, we've done all sorts of good things in life to help other people out and all sorts, you know. That's all really good. What I'm talking about is anything that was done for the sake of pleasure is meaningless. It's kind of like when you are thirsty, tell me, how useful is it to drink seawater? If you're stuck in the middle of the sea, on a boat, and you're thirsty, and there's no clean water to drink, how meaningful is it, do you think? How wise do you think it is to drink seawater to quench your thirst? Do you see the irony in that? Because what happens when you drink seawater? The very thing that you consume to take you out of your thirst is what makes you thirsty. That's the irony. Let me repeat that. The very thing that you do, or in the example of the seawater, the very thing that you drink 
to relieve yourself from thirst is the thing that puts you into that thirst or that makes you thirsty. So, do you see the irony there? The last thing you ought to be doing when you're thirsty, if you're stuck in the middle of the sea, is what? To ease your thirst is drink what? To drink seawater. Right? Because the more you drink it, the thirstier you're going to get. The same principle applies here. Previously in a talk, I used the example of a rash. Whatever you do to relieve yourself from that itch of the rash is the very thing that's going to make it even itchier. Yes or no? Because what do people normally do when they have a rash and it starts to itch? They scratch, right? So, the more you scratch, the itchier it gets because it disturbs the rash, doesn't it? So if there are blisters or whatever, then you know they start to, to burst and the if there's, a, 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 there's some fungi or some bacterial infection, it's going to start to grow because it's going to start to spread through your action. So, scratching that rash is only going to make it worse. But why did you scratch? To relieve yourself of the itch. So the very thing that you do to relieve yourself of the itch is the thing that's going to make it itch even more. Ironical or what? Now the same principle applies here. When the mind wants pleasure, when it wanted pleasure, it was in its normal state. It began like this. And the truth is, folks, believe you me, that at each and every moment in our lives, we always start off like this. Because the mind works at such a rapid rate. Our thoughts rise and pass away so rapidly. Each one starts off like this. Each one starts off happy. Each one is infected with attachment. When infected with attachment, each one, each one of them goes into a state of vexation. Why? Because it's attached to pleasure. It is pleasure that the mind begins to want. Why? We'll come to that. I mean, why would the mind want that? Is it not, is, is it not happy with happiness? Why does the mind want pleasure? We'll come to that. I just want you to understand for the time being. The mind wants pleasure. When the mind wants or begins to want pleasure, the mind is now attached to pleasure. It is somehow indoctrinated. Some kind of idea, some, some view. This is called a wrong view. A view, an idea, a concept is planted in the mind. That pleasure is good. Go after it. Get it. And then the mind is attached to it. So attachment again is a function. Let's not forget that. When that function happens, when attachment takes place, the mind immediately coils itself into this state. So you understand this is only a metaphor, right? So the mind does not look like this. It's an energy. You can't, you can't give it any form. It's formless. But this is to help you understand this. So this is an analogy. So the mind goes into this state like a clenched fist. Now why did it go into that state? Because it's, it wants pleasure. And then what the mind does is it relieves, lets go, relaxes. And the moment it does that, the very thing that it wanted, it now experiences. It goes, ah, that's what I wanted. Now, again, I'm really emphasizing the point here because I really, really, really want you to get this. It now experiences this relief and it goes, ah, that's the pleasure I wanted. You see, in the pursuit of pleasure, what has it done to itself? It was like this to begin with. In the pursuit of pleasure, look what it did to itself. It went into a state of pain, into a state of vexation, into a state of suffering. That is why they say, attachment 
is the cause of suffering. When the mind wants pleasure, the mind is attached to pleasure. The mind goes into a state of suffering, into a state of wanting, into a state of vexation. Then, because of course the mind is told, these are the indoctrinations that come into it from the outside, which we'll talk about later. Through these indoctrinations, the mind believes ice cream brings me pleasure. A piece of chicken leg brings me pleasure. A sausage brings me pleasure. Cheesecake brings me pleasure. A soda brings me pleasure. A kind of lager brings me pleasure. Some red wine brings me pleasure. All sorts of things. Violets, roses, daffodils. This perfume, that perfume. This picture, that picture. Whatever brings me pleasure. These are all wrong views. Because we know now that pleasure is not something that can be sought from these external factors. But does the mind know this? Not yet. Not yet. So, through this wrong indoctrination, through this misguided view, and in the, in, in the pursuit of that pleasure, the mind immediately attaches to that, remember we talked about this profile last week or the week before. This thing that the mind believes brings it pleasure, the mind attaches to itself to it. It's that internal impression of that object. So if it's a glass of red wine, there's an internal Im impulse of that. There's an internal impression of that, which the mind has grasped onto, it's which the mind is clinging onto. So it's clinging on to that, hoping it's going to get that pleasure that it was told that it was going to get. And then, when presented with that object, it's not the object that brings pleasure, but when presented with that object, the mind goes like that. And then immediately it experiences that relief from all this pain that it was in just a moment ago. That is the pleasure that it, the mind experiences. It is not the object. It is not the object. It is simply this relief from vexation. So this is the irony. Seeking of pleasure is what puts the mind into a state of pain, the relief from which gives it pleasure. So is it not ironical to go after that pleasure? Because had it not gone after that pleasure, what would the mind would have been in? A state of pure bliss, unconditional happiness. But the moment the mind goes after pleasure, now it needs to be relieved of that pain. Therefore, there are conditions that have to be true. Conditions that have to come true for that pleasure to be achieved. Therefore, that we described as pleasure and this is happiness. So you see the difference between the two? Attachment is a function that makes it do that. And that is what we introduced last week as the second noble truth. The second noble truth of suffering, or this wanting, is attachment. It is attachment that makes the mind do that. So I hope you've got that straight. Perhaps go back and listen to the talk once more, just to hear those words once or twice again, and for those messages to resound in your mind, you know, just to dot the I's and cross the T's in case you might have missed one or two bits along the way. I'm sure it will be helpful. Take this into the lab of life. Use your own examples and apply them into these principles and see to what extent you can agree with them, to what extent this is sound true. Always and always and always. This is the only thing that will convince you that this, that this is the truth that was expounded by the Supreme Buddha. With that, I will leave you for today. But before we do so, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired. Let us transfer the merits to all who have helped us to be where we are today, to our devotees who make it possible for these sermons, to these talks to happen, because none of these are things that I've brought with me myself. The, least, the reason you are able to listen to these talks are because there are good, kind-hearted and generous people just like yourself who want nothing other than to understand these truths and do what they can to share this with people just like yourself all around the world. 
So it is they that make all of this possible. All I have to do is come here, sit down and start speaking. But there's so much that has to go on behind the scenes to make it all possible. There are people who are engaged in recording these, editing them, uploading them, sharing them out, out with others. And then there are people who do what they can from wherever they are to contribute to these talks, perhaps by making the technology available for them. There's someone that donated the camera that's recording me speak to you right now and this microphone. So it's people just like yourself and it is all of them that we need to be grateful for because had it not been for them, you and I would not, never have met. So let's take a moment to transfer all the merits that we have acquired to all of them. Also not forgetting our teachers because it is thanks to them that today we are able to understand these concepts, these ideas and share them out with others. So you appreciate why our merit transfers are so lengthy because there are so many people, absolutely uncountable number of people that we need to be grateful for. And all they expect from us is merit. So that's what we do. Okay, let's take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Stripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to understand and comprehend them. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at this monastery, as well as the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. And may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plain, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery and to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those of you who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May to the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces and our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers, employees and to all those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these mates, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambuddhasasana. Let us also transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may it through the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom, and may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us and to all those who have been our families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara and those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in every way, shape or form. Let us also transfer merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives and continue to protect the peace and harmony of our nations and may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us also transfer merits to all those who have lost their lives to the natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one, and reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been our friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them, and may the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, 
and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may, through the power and blessings of all the mates we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And may we all, through the power of all the mates we have acquired today, you and I and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become an arahatan muhanse and arahatteran in muhanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to speaking to you again next week. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.